Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, yes, we're going to turn back to John chapter 1, the great gospel of John that we started a couple of weeks ago. And you'll remember last week we uh, got into our second message on that great book, and we began to see and develop, you know, the concept of God is light, the light of God. God's true light, the Son of God, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world, the Bible says. The Word of God in that light lights men through the Holy Spirit of God. And we, we went through and began to lay that out. And I showed you, you know, the first week we defined uh, the word beginning as the way that God began to go. And this is how God's way brought the light into the world of total darkness through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then through the word, the word of God, which we have in our hands today. And I give you yet another example of John. <clears throat> I can't underscore this enough. Uh, John is the greatest type in the picture, in all of the Bible probably, uh, of what your life and my life should be as a child of God, uh, using the light that God gives him and doing what he does. And I, I showed you how that the word of God last week in my own life, you know, uh, is likened to five lamps, and it fits into your world, too. I showed you how that the Word of God is a reading lamp. It illuminates what you're reading as you're trying to go through the Bible. I showed you how that the Bible is a heat lamp, that it gives you the necessary spiritual vitamins that you need and warms your soul uh, in the coldness of this old world. How that was a safety lamp to show you, uh, keep you safe. How it was a traveler's lamp that showed you where God wanted you to go in your life and how also that it was a night lamp uh, to light the way through this dark world. Everything that we need to sustain our life through the Word of God will be found in the light of God's Word. Uh, people, God's people, uh, continually look everywhere else in this world for something that satisfies, to something that will guide them when all they need is what they have in their hands this morning through the light of the Word of God. And I gave you two great verses, one in Psalms 119, 105, that says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and the light unto my path. And then again in Psalms 119, 130, where it says that the entrance of thy word, it giveth light. And then I gave you, if you'll remember, <clears throat> the definitive chapter on the Holy Spirit of God and how it works. Uh, in the church age. And that would be John chapter 16. And I showed you the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit of God. Three things that the Holy Spirit of God will do for an unsaved man. He'll reprove him of sin. He'll reprove the world of righteousness. That's Christ. And he'll reprove the word of judgment. That's the great white throne judgment when every man will stand before God. And then I showed you as a saved man, the Holy Spirit of God will do four things for us. First of all, he'll lead and guide us into all truth. And we made the emphasis on all truth being in the Word of God. We saw how he glorifies Christ, and that is what we're to do. And the true picture of the Holy Spirit of God inside each of us will be uh, how we glorify Christ with what we do. The third thing is that he shows us what's coming. He shows us what's coming down the line, that you don't get caught up and all of the things that are happening around you uh, today and, and misread those and get them put into some context that it really shouldn't be in. And then 
he, the last thing, he shows us what's real. He'll show us what's of God and what's not of God. And yet, again, I say this, God's people today are totally oblivious to any of this. And then we saw the great word study, or the great study, I should say, around the word contrast. How that God uses contrast to teach us. He said in John chapter 1, verse 4, that the light, that the, God made two great lights. And that great light, God divided the light from the darkness. And that formed the first contrast in the Bible. The rest of our time in the Word of God, the rest of our Christian life, and everything we go through and face well, simply comes down to that contrast, light versus darkness. That's why it's so important <clears throat> to have the Holy Spirit of God be able to show you what is of God and what is not of God. And I showed you how that Satan has a black light, a light that is in thee be darkness, the Bible said in Matthew. And with that light, he blinds the minds of unsaved people and saved people too. And uh, uh, he blocks the glorious light from Christ coming through. And again, how that the life of John is our example of what we sh as Christians should be. Uh, John is an incredible book, and it's, as we move through it, <clears throat> we're going to see so many solid, practical concepts. Not only in the verses that we look at as we go through, but in the stories that Christ unfolds great truth in through uh, the Gospel of John. Now today... We're going to begin to look at another man whose name also is John. And this will be John the Baptist. Did you ever notice that in the world there's probably more guys named John than any other, any other name? I mean, it's a very popular name and a very common name. In the Bible and in teaching the Bible... Uh, John the Baptist is, uh, John is called, John, uh, John who wrote the gospel is called John the Beloved. The name John means God is gracious. And again, it's no accident that the first man who sets it all into motion, John the Baptist, his name is John, and then the last man who sums it all up and lays out the complete picture for us and gives us the whole account, his name is John. And both of these men come that all men through them might believe. It's an incredible uh, picture uh, coming through the Bible. Now, our verses today will be John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Let's read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump into it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you today for the time that we've set aside to uh, open up your word. We pray, Father, that first off and first and foremost, that we would look to you for a cleansing, that the blood of Christ would cover us today, that anything that's not been confessed, that's not right with you, uh, Lord, at this moment, that you would forgive us for it and take us forward, that we too might understand the great doctrines and the teachings of the Word of God. We love you. We thank you, Father, for all that you do for us now. And we'll be careful to give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. The ministry of John the Baptist. He said there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The ministry of John the Baptist is one of the uh, most 
prominent stories in the Bible. And we know that he is the forerunner of Christ. And he starts his ministry six months before Christ starts his. In fact, he's born six months before Christ is born. And the whole thing is, is John the Baptist was the forerunner of all this. He comes to the Jews and he's the first man to proclaim that Christ has come to the nation of Israel as their Savior and as their Messiah. And he's prophesied back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 7, and again in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, you'll find the, the verse there that you'll find in, in the New Testament Gospels that he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John comes out of the wilderness... Uh, and he comes to a nation that is very hardened against anything that God has. We know they have a form of godliness, but they have truly denied the power thereof. And Christ now has come to uh, give them their salvation as his people, the nation of Israel. And John the Baptist comes six months ahead, preaching repentance to the nation of Israel. And uh, he baptizes down in Jordan. I don't have time this morning to <coughs> go into all of that, why Jordan is so important in all of this, and uh, why that's the river that he picked. And uh, it's all got its purpose and its plan in what God uh, is going to do. In John chapter 3, verse 29, he is called the friend of the bridegroom. Now, we don't have time to get into this today, but we will take the time when we get into John chapter 3, when we get into this verse, how that in God's household, from Genesis to Revelation, there's seven members of that household. And we know that the household is going <coughs> to a wedding someday, <coughs> and that wedding is going to be Christ, the, the, the bridegroom, and you and I as the church, as the bride. And at that wedding, John the Baptist represents a group of people who were called the friend of the bridegroom. One of the greatest studies that you'll ever take to unlock a lot of things in the Bible that we'll do when we get there. When John shows up, he creates quite a, 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 a stir with Rome. I mean, this guy is not your... A three-piece suit, normal neo-evangelical pastor showing up, or a Baptist. This guy comes out of the wilderness. He's awfully scraggly looking. He's probably got a beard, and he's got a lot of locust wings and locust juice stuck in his beard because that's what he ate. I mean, he's not your first choice to take home from dinner, nor would you want your daughter <coughs> coming home and saying, Dad, can I date this guy? But he was God's man. God knew what he needed to come up against the Roman Empire. And John creates quite a stir for, stir for Rome. And they ultimately get rid of him. They marvel at him. Even the Roman Herods, they, they, they want to know who this Jesus is he's speaking of. People are beginning to follow him. He got a lot of attention out of this. But you know as well as I do that they had to get rid of him. And in time, they kill him by cutting off his head. You'll find that in Mark chapter 6, verse 14. Matthew chapter 14, verse 2, and then the third account of that is Luke chapter 9, verse 7. And you know how the story goes. Uh, Herod had one of, uh, <clears throat> one out of one of his lady friends, whose daughter was a belly dancer, I guess, and she did a, a belly dance for him, and he said that was the greatest belly dance he ever saw. 
and he offered her whatever she wanted in the kingdom or something like that, except his position. And the mother, <clears throat> see, this is how it works. The mother hated John the Baptist because John the Baptist was preaching against her and some of the things that she was doing, and she didn't like it. So now's the opportunity. So she pulls her daughter aside and she says, he's going to give you whatever you want in the kingdom, less his throne. Here's what you tell him you want. Tell him you want John the Baptist head cut off and bring to you on a plate. So she goes and tells him that. Bible says that Herod didn't want to do it. But Herod's a weak guy and because of the oath he did it. And so that's how they got rid of John. They killed him. They cut off his head. And, uh, you know, that's how it went down. Now, let me just say this, too. I get to throw this out here because you get into all kinds of heresy today. Uh, there's a group out there of Baptists who are called Baptist Briders, like bride, bride in a wedding, Baptist Briders. And they're a her heretical group that teaches that the first Baptist was John the Baptist. And uh, they take the position that the Baptist church starts with John the Baptist. Obviously, they're associating John the Baptist with us as Baptists. And, of course, that is the, about as far stretch as you could ever be. All that tells me about anybody who claims to be a Baptist brighter is if you went to Bible college, you need to get your money back. Uh, you can't even come to that conclusion with even a, a eyedropper full of Bible truth about how God is dealing in the New Testament. It shows a complete lack of church history. It shows a complete lack of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and what God is doing. It shows a complete lack of book of Acts uh, and everything in between. So all I want to tell you is that is that if you ever run into a Baptist brighter, you know, that's not what you're looking for. I can guarantee you. Now, what I just gave you here is the historical account or application of John the Baptist, him coming to the nation of Israel doctrinally. Uh, it'll be a picture of the tribulation period. You're showed in John, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 17, that John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah. And that's a key, uh, putting all of this together in a doctrinal sense, but that's not our goal today either. I want to talk to you about the practical application here. Because for me personally, uh, it's an incredible personal verse to me. There are certain verses in the Bible that mean so much to me, and they mean so much to me because they were used of God, in, if not directly, indirectly, that impact my life that, that I never want to forget, nor will I ever forget, simply because it's the great reality of truth that comes out of these verses. Because these, this passage this morning, or the verse that we read, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. It carries the truth in our lives as Christians that God will always put somebody in your life. God will always give you a man or a woman. And then he'll reveal himself through the word of God, through that person that he put in, his li in your life. And for me, it reminds me that I would never have what I have today with the Bible and the ministry without a man that God put into my life. A few years back, my father in the Lord, Mel Sabaka, some of you older folks 
met him, have met him. You know him. You younger folks didn't have the privilege of knowing him, for he died and before you ever got the meeting. But many of you remember the old days at Old McDonald's Farm up in St. Joe when Mel was our preacher up there, and, and uh, you've heard him preach many, many, many times. And I, I, I preached at his funeral. And... Um, the verse that I used was the verse that we started with today because I wanted to make a point. And the verse I, I started with was John chapter 1 verse 6, and I said this. There was a man sent from God whose name was Mel. And I wanted to make the point that God always puts a man or a woman in your life when you get saved. Or he should. Many churches today, it doesn't happen. Most ministries today, it doesn't happen because they don't see the value of that. When I got out of the army, and my father went home to be with the Lord, and God began to work the events in my life to get me back where I needed to be, it was... God using this man and his wife, Mel and Jean Sabaka, and Jean's probably watching this morning, uh, and it was God putting this man in my life that changed everything in the direction of my life. I look back on that time, and I, I, I learned a great truth, that our lives, that our God will always give us somebody to mentor us and to help us to get to where God wants us to be. God never expected, and a lot of people think this, and a lot of people want this, but it'll never work for you. God never intended for you just to get saved and for you to figure it out all by yourself. Why, Paul himself tells you that the things that you've heard of me take and commit to faithful men. You'll find down through history that unbroken chain. And it's a thing where uh, I, I, you know, I... I will never be able to repay what he did for me. And it was a thing where I knew nothing. I got right with God and there I stood. I had Bible colleges pulling at me from this side, people saying this is what you need to do. I had my own feelings in my own heart of what I thought I needed to do. And I had everybody out there telling me, but one man... One man took the time to invest his life into my life and lead me and guide me. And I, I know that I, I, I could never repay that. And I'm going to tell you right now, I could never take that. I would never take that for granted. And I know without God putting him into my life, I never would have made it. I never would have made it. And this is why so many of God's people today, even here, you don't make it. God will put somebody in your life, they'll go along for a while, and that person in your life is there from God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. John came to change the thinking of the nation of Israel. And God will put somebody in your life because the key ingredient after you either get saved or right with God is one word. Change. Now, let me say this. I, I, I totally get it. He was just a man. He was human. 
I, I got to see his human side. I mean, he, he had an old sin nature just like you and I do. And I, I, I get that. I'm not trying to say that, you know, he was the God of my life. He was certainly the Apostle Paul of my life. But that Bible says, it tells us that John was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, that all men through him. Wow. What a strange concept today in Christianity. Allowing God to work through you to touch somebody else's life. He was human. He had his faults. He made his mistakes. Uh, He had his problems just like we all do. And and people down through the years said, well, you're just following a man. You're just following a man. Did you ever notice how everybody says you're just following a man is following somebody? I mean, that's what the Bible says you're supposed to do. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be ye followers of me as I'm a follower of Christ. Everybody follows somebody. That's what you're supposed to do. You just got to make sure you're following the right man. Mel. Boy, over the 50 years that we were together, almost 50, at least 40, anyhow, he died before, but at least 40 years together. Boy, we get into some stuff. I can stand here all morning long and stay all afternoon and all tonight and tell you about the capers that him and I got into. The things that as we walked through life together and he taught me the ministry and he allowed me to get into his world. And more important than that, he was willing to get into my world. And I learned everything I know today from him. He was the foundation of my life. He was my model. He was my example of everything I do in ministry. And when I came to Kansas City back in 1976, (laughs) I had no idea what I had gotten into. I had no idea what I was doing. I came here, got to be a youth pastor just like Zach. And uh, I didn't know anybody out here. Barbara just had Kelly. And uh, we, Jim Lake, you all know Jim Lake, him and I drove out together in a moving van. And, uh, you know, we got out here and I, mean, I, I, had no, I had no idea. If I would have known, I probably wouldn't have come. <laughs> Nothing personal to you guys, but I mean, it was a hornet's nest out here. I don't know how many times. I fell back on him and called him up and said, hey, buddy, what do I do with this? I got this now. And he always was there for me. You know, it's another great principle that young guys today, I don't know, that was a long time ago. Things have changed. I get it. Everybody today thinks you're smarter than the guy that God put in your life. But I've seen it. You know, another great principle. You never want to forsake the man that God puts into your life. You just never do. All my ministry, some 50 years now almost, I've had guys, you know, want to go out and start a church. And I'd say, no, you know what? You're not ready to do that yet. Oh, I'm going. Uh, you know, and a guy said one time, he says, well, I'm going out to start a church. He says, I want your blessing. I said, hey, my blessing you got to have. you got to have God's blessing. 
And I've watched those guys do those things and forsake the guy that God put in their life to teach them the ministry. You know, if you hang around here long enough, you can learn some things about the ministry. Do you know that? Amen. They never wanted to. Every one of them failed. Every one of them was a disaster. You see, I was smart enough or dumb enough, however you want to put it, to believe and to know that when God put me, Mel, in my life, it was there to learn some things. That I was going to stay put until God moved me, not my own movement of what I wanted to do. And I, like Samuel, you know, I, I made up my mind, like Samuel, that I was going to let none of his words fall to the ground because I knew he knew a lot more about it than I did. And I learned, and I used those things. And then I added to them as I grew and learned from my own experiences. Hey, he, and, hey I, I don't want to paint it. He was, he was hard on me. He did to me what I could never do to some of you. He held me accountable. I was preaching one time. In fact, it was the first time I preached. There had to be four or five hundred people there. And they gave me a shot at it. I still think to this day he just set me up so he could whack me. And so I'm up there preaching, you know, and I'm coming through there and I'm just, boy, you know what? I'm just like all those young guys. I'm just spitting it out, you know, and just going to town. And I said, uh, you know, uh, by, uh, up there about, I don't even know what I was preaching on anymore, but I made the quote, by the sweat of, your, sweat of your brow, you earn your bread. And I'm just going to town and right in the middle of that sermon, I heard this big, loud voice say, book, chapter, verse. So I got into my Bible there and it said, I said, by the sweat of your brow. In the Bible, it said, by the sweat of your face. And I read it and he said, young man, if you're ever going to preach the word of God, you need to learn to quote it correctly. Now, what would you do if I did that to you? You'd be out of here so fast. Me and old Bob. Why, you'd call your mama, your daddy, your uncle, your aunt, and even the people in your family that are dead. What a terrible thing to do, embarrassing you. See, that's the difference between when God gives you a man and you believe he's the man that God gives you, you can take those things. You know why? Because I knew he loved me. And I'll tell you something else. I always think twice before I quote a verse again. None of that mattered to me. He was the apostle Paul of my life. I needed somebody to keep me accountable. I look back at my diligence, if I have any at all, in the word of God today, goes back to time just like that. And there's men, young men today, that if you try to do something like that or try to correct them uh, where they could really learn the lesson. You know what? There are some lessons that you can learn over time. And then there's some lessons you can learn spot on in 10 seconds. That was one of them. Can't do that today. It's a different world. You know, we were both soldiers. He was a soldier during World War II, and I was a soldier during the Vietnam War. We had a bond together. We had a camaraderie of, of, of discipline and understanding how you take orders. And how there's an accountability, there's a chain of command. We understood that. I no more looked at things like that as my, you know, as the, my mentor 
teaching me about the ministry that I did to my drill sergeant in AIT trying to keep me alive by chewing me out for something I did stupid. I watched him make hard decisions. I watched him and I knew that he knew more than I did. I knew that he saw what I could not see. And never one time did I doubt him. I may not always understood him. I had the privilege of going to him and asking him, why did you do this? Because he knew I wanted to learn. But never one time did I doubt him. You know why? It wasn't because he was perfect. It wasn't because he never made any mistakes. It was because I knew that he was the man that God put in my life. He was sent to me to give me what he had that I so desperately needed. And he gave me my Bible. He was a man that I watched, read the Word of God through every 33 days. You've got to read 50 chapters a day to get through the Bible in 33 days. He did it all of his life. He taught me my stand on truth. He taught me my love and caring for people. I learned my love for the ministry from him. And it, I learned that in tough times you don't quit. That God's people many times will say, I can't do this, but God always says, we can do this. He developed my leadership skills. He knew how to do that, and I, I learned from him. I learned from him all of my life. And yet, following that unbroken chain of 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2, the things that you've heard of me, the same commit thou to faithful men, God gave him a man when he started out. That man was Pete Ruckman. I remember him telling me the stories many, many times. I remember sitting at camp, listening to him and Brother Pete talk the wee hours of the morning, just sat over there and just absorbed everything they said. <clears throat> Mel told me the story many, many times, how that when he first got right with the Lord, that he was really questioning everything. He was going to a secular college. He was working on a Ph.D. or a degree in psychology and whatever. And he, 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 he got right with God or got faced with God. And, and for the first time in his life, he heard a man, Pete Ruckman, preach on an absolute standard that overrode everything in life. And he said, after one of the services, as I called that man over and sat him down and I said, tell me right now, do I have absolute truth? And old Ruckman let him have it. They were lifelong friends for the rest of their lives. And yet we talk about Pete Ruckman. God gave him a man. Oh, Pete Ruckman got out of the army there and was in Pensacola, Florida, completely unsaved, working as a disc jockey at the radio station in Pensacola. And a pastor, young pastor, came in by the name of U Pyle, witnessed to Pete and won him to Christ and mentored him. God always uses a man. There'll never be a time that in your life or my life, if you want to get where you want to go, 
I'm telling you right now, everybody in this church who has grown and, and become a strong a person, Christian leader, only did so because God put somebody in your life to help you. And I look across this church and I see some of you have mentored 10, 15, 20, 30 people in your time here. It's an, your, your life is a revolving door of bringing people in, ministering to them, giving them what they need, and then sending them out. And I'll just go on record right now and say this. The greatest friend you'll ever have outside the Lord Jesus Christ is the man or the woman God puts into your life to tell you about him. Who puts up with you, who nurtures you, who brings you along, who puts up with your pettiness to get you to be where God wants you to be. Some of God's people have forgotten that today. And I guess in the Bible, the greatest example of this will be the Apostle Paul. And by the way, the Apostle Paul was Mel's favorite character in the Bible, you might have guessed. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, he told the church at Corinth, and he is, he, he's being hard on them. If you know anything about 1 Corinthians, chapter by chapter, he's nailing them on multiple things that they're doing, and he's not cutting them any slack. But he says to them, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. That puts it in a whole different context, doesn't it? You see, we need to be warned about some things. The reason why God's people get in the messes they get in and the reason why we all got in the messes because before we got saved because we didn't listen to the people that warned us. A little bit later on in the book of 2 Corinthians, the church starts to come around, but there's a group of people and these people will be in every church. And in 2 Corinthians 3, 1, there's a group now within the church of Corinth that don't appreciate Paul holding them accountable. They didn't appreciate that he loved them like their own. He built that church. He won those people to Christ. And they didn't appreciate the fact that now he's trying to straighten them out. <laughs> and they say, could you give us proof? Imagine asking the apostle Paul, the man who got the revelation from God, uh, from him to God. For 10, 12, 13 years, it was him and God. God, Can you imagine in that day asking his credentials? And these pious gas bag wannabes in the church at Corinth are saying, well, who do you think you are, Paul? Could you give us a commendation from somebody that really proves you are who you say you are? And you know what his answer was? He says, yeah, I'll give them to you. Go look in the mirror. How about you? You wouldn't even be here if I didn't win you to Christ. You find him. You find him. But he was the man that God put in that church. He started it. He won them to Christ and he loved them as his spiritual sons. Now, I'm going to tell you something, and you better listen. God will put someone in your life that sees what you can't see. God will put somebody in your life who's walked the same path that you're on right now. 
Somebody who uh, worked their way through some tough times. Don't get an attitude about that. Like Paul, they love you and they want to warn you. And yet, in the majority of God's people today, because we live in a different time than my day, the key word is unteachable. They never see the value. They never see the power of that verse, that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And I get it. We live in a different world today. Nothing is the same today than when I started. I say all the time, you know, that my goal is to build a Philadelphian church, if you know church history, build a Philadelphian church within a Laodicean church age. That sounds really neat and, 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 and great talking point, but that's really tough to do because nobody wants that today. And Mel and Jean took me in as their son. My father died and I had nobody. <clears throat> and spiritually. And they brought me in and, and uh, you know, give me, took care of me and gave me what I needed, taught me what uh, leadership was, taught me what Christianity was really all about, taught me what ministry was. I mean, he was the greatest leader of men that I had ever met in my life, and to this day. And the things that I learned, I watched in his own life first. And I watched that he just didn't tell me. He, I watched him doing it. I don't fancy myself as a good leader. I don't. But whatever I learned about leadership, I learned from him. And he taught me. We sat. We drove. I, after a while, I, I was his song leader. We worked together. We preached together. We, we went places together. I would lead the singing and play the trumpet, and he would preach. We were a formidable team. And all that time, I used whatever time I had to find out everything I could. And he taught me. He trained me. I remember asking him one time on a long trip, you know, I said, Mel, Mel I said, what, what, you know... I know I'm new to this, and I see all this around me, but what, 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 what is a real leader? I, I want to be a leader. I, I, I want to be, but I don't want to be the wrong leader. And I'll never forget how he, on that long trip, he told me. The first thing he said was, you know what, Bob? He says, I guess this is the first thing you need to understand, that leadership is not about ability. Everybody thinks it is. Everybody thinks that you have great ability that would make you a great leader. And he says, that's not true. He says, real leadership is not about ability. Real leadership is about accountability. Will you be accountable to the truth of the Word of God first? He says, anybody can make easy decisions, Bob. He says, but a leader, a real leader is going to have to make hard decisions. He's going to have to make decisions that are unpopular. And I had just watched him. He had a lifelong friend. I won't say the guy's name, but he had a lifelong friend that worked with him in the ministry for, what, 20-some years, probably. And he was over one of the Sunday school classes that Mel was over all the superintendent of that, and he head up the junior high class. And this guy, and I don't even remember what it was, but he got, he got sideways with the preacher or something, the pastor of the church, and something happened. But Mel had to replace him. And I'm telling you right now, that was the hardest decision that he ever made in his life. 
Those guys were lifelong friends. And they never spoke since that day till never did. In fact, that guy left the church like you all do. And, you know, he, he, he was gone. Went down to another Baptist church and a guy out of that church had split and went down there and started another with a cipher people. That's how it works. And I watched him make that decision and it tore his guts out to have to do that to somebody that he was as close to. But he made this call. You know why? Because real leadership isn't about ability. It's about accountability. And you have to be accountable to the truth. And when you're accountable to the truth, a leader has to make some hard calls. He taught me. He said, you know what? Most people don't see this, Bob, but he says, you never really, if you're going to be a, a, he says, I know you, you, you don't understand all of this, but he says, you don't build, you build leaderships through adversity. Anybody can be a leader when things are good. When times fall apart and everything caves in in the world, and he had no idea where we were headed to, he says the real test of a leader and how you build leaders is you build them through adversity. He says you learn as a leader to take advantage of the adversity to build people through it. I've never forgotten that. That's a foreign concept today. But I've never forgotten that. You know, it, it, when I go through tough times like we're going through right now with all this stuff, it just it, it makes me look for the opportunities. And we're already seeing God lay it out. And we get to October 11th. I'm going to show you how I have sat down and, and, and give you the opportunities because you know, this is where we're at. We can no longer do it the way we did it. And I don't know that we'll ever be able to go back to. So what do we do? Quit? We all find a pet rock to crawl under? Then he taught me this. He said, you know, Bob, he said, a leader projects positivity, never negativity. He says, people are going to look to you and if you have a negative attitude, hide it. He says, because people feed on positive things, but they also feed on negative things. He says, the way you do that is, he says, you always look at, see what God is doing in any situation. Find what God is doing in it, not what you think he should be doing. People will look to you. And when you project a negative attitude about everything, when you don't like nothing or nobody, that gets contagious. And he says, there's nothing negative about the ministry other than people. But don't let the negativity of people destroy the positive things in the ministry. Then he said, you know what, every, every Christian... I never forget this one. Every Christian should be a leader in one of four levels. He says, first of all, he needs to be a leader with his family. Second of all, he needs to be a leader within his church. Thirdly, he needs to be a leader within ministry. And then fourthly, he needs to be the ultimate leader with people as an elder or a pastor. 
And of course, we know that 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says that if you don't have rule over your own family, if they're not in church today, if they're not serving the Lord, you're out of the rest. You're just spinning your wheels. You're kidding yourself. The church is found in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. The ministry is found in the book of 1 Corinthians and chapter, in 2 Corinthians. And, uh, you know, the uh, elder and the pastor concepts found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's all laid out for you. And then he taught me this. And boy, this is one I, I, I use all the time. I never forgot. He said, you know, the number one quality of a good leader is that he's a good follower. He says, Bob, you're not always going to be in charge. He says, Bob, you're not always going to be the leader. And he says, most people, if their whole world is about, look at me. I've got to be the one in charge. I've got to be this. I've got to be that. And if I'm not, then I don't really want to be involved in it. He says, you're going to find out, and boy, how true it was. He says, you see, a real leader will never be a real leader until he's a real follower. And he says, what you do, he says, you won't always be in the lead, so you follow the guy that puts in leadership, and then you lead, lend your leadership skills to what he's doing to make whatever he's doing more successful. Or you go sit in the corner over here, over there, or back there, and suck your thumb. And that was so true. He said, you know, a leader, a real leader doesn't ever complain about what, what he doesn't have. You know what defeats us because we go around all day long whining about what we don't have when the opportunities are all around you that you can have whatever you want. And he told me, don't ever expect God just to serve up the ministry to you on a silver platter. He never does it that way. A real leader will have to look at the opportunities and make some things happen based on the opportunities through the leading of the Holy Spirit of God and that's why I've told you for how many years, look behind, look around, and look ahead. Like the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 we saw several months ago. She seeketh and was willing. And then he taught me that when you build a church, you don't build buildings, which everybody does today. They think you build a bigger doghouse, the dogs will come and live in it. You don't build a church by building a building. You build a church one person at a time by building people. He says, as you grow and your church grows, the way you train people to be what they need to be is the fact that you learn to delegate, not legislate. He taught me that a leader will always lead from the front, never from in the rear with the gear. You build relationships with people that you want to train and mentor and bring them along. The only way you do that is by training them, is by getting into their world. And then he taught, boy, he knew this one well. He said, a real leader will always stand for God when nobody else will. He's taught me to look beyond the faults of people. Look beyond whatever they're at in their life. Look beyond their struggles. And always look to see God's potential that is in them. And don't get overshadowed with where they're struggling and miss the opportunity 
to unveil that potential and then develop it. And then he taught me to be effective in ministry. You have to invest your life in others' lives. People are not going to just come seek you out. They're not going to come and say, oh, you're going to, when we go, you'll see it. And I learned this from him. We'll go to volleyball. We'll go to, we'll go to uh, anything. I don't care what it is. Whatever we do, there's a crowd. You'll see me do one thing. I work that crowd. I don't care who wins the volleyball game. I don't care who wins the softball game. I'm there for one reason. There's people there that need what I have, and I've got to find out who wants it and who doesn't. So I don't so sit back and say, hey, I'm the pastor. I really know the Bible. Why don't you come and gravel up my feet? you got to work the crowd. you got to go to them. you got to build relationships with them. You can't be the last one there and the first one to leave. you got to work the crowd, man. There's people in that crowd that God wants to put in your world. But you got to get on their level. You must seek them out and God will show you the opportunities through the relationship you build. And today, this concept of, of God sending us a man is so clearly laid out in what I call the Timothy concept. Something that I've used now almost 50 years of my life. The model of Paul and Timothy. But then you see it with Paul and Titus too. That was his son of the Lord. You see it with Paul and Philemon. Uh, you know, his fellow laborer who when Paul's in jail, he wins Onesimus to the Lord and then he sends a letter to Philemon saying, hey, this kid is my son now in the Lord. Oh, that's all he did. And how Paul sets the example for us that we should take men and women and mentor. Keep that word in mind. Mentor them and help them because God, uh, because God's, you know, become God's leader, what God wants them to do. Develop them in one of those four areas. And I found in this great verse my example and my model for building people based on the man that God put in my life. There was a man sent from God whose name was Mel. Hey, let me ask you. Can somebody quote that verse today and put your name in there? And as far as I'm concerned... That's my calling in life as a Christian and as a pastor. Building people. Taking young men and young ladies and giving them the opportunity to grow. Putting the things in their life that they need. Seeing beyond their struggles. Seeing them as God sees them. Creating scenarios and putting them in probably before they're ready to. But you know what? If you don't ever get step out and get going, you'll never get going. And I've done that for almost 50 years, building in them the qualities of a Christian life that my Paul tried to build in me. You know, I've never been about quantity, numbers, how many you have. I've always been about quality. Building the best I can with the best that God sends me. Taking strong men and women and making them stronger. 
And in Philippians chapter 2, the book of Philippians, you want to turn over there now. In Philippians chapter 2, you're going to find two examples of two men that illustrate exactly what I'm talking about. Because God sent Paul to them. Just like he sent Mel to me, and he sent John to the nation of Israel. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 24, and then a little bit beyond, you see the overall goal, what the overall goal should be for me and also for you. Paul and Timothy, the Timothy concept. And he says in chapter 2, verses 19 through 24, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you that I also may have good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are, Christ, are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him that as a son with the Father, he hath served me in the gospel, as a son with the Father. See that thing? Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Now, Philippians is an incredible book. It's a prison epistle. A prison epistle. Paul is in jail, and he can't get to the church at Philippi. Paul loves these people. Again, he won these people to Christ. <clears throat> he started this church. He cares for them. He's responsible for them. But now he's locked away and he can't do, listen to me, he can no longer do the ministry that he once was able to do. So he turns to his son in the Lord to do for him what he is unable to do. And he says in verse 20 and 21, For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own. And boy, do they. Never in the day and age of ministry with God's people do I see that second verse more prominent. Uh, that uh, verse 21, that they, everybody's seeking their own today. Nobody wants to step out <coughs> and invest in somebody's life. Oh, <coughs> if they come to you, if somebody gives you somebody, but going out and seeking. You know how you got saved? You didn't get saved because you were seeking God. The Bible says in the book of Luke that the Son of Man come to seek and save that was the law. He sought you first. He says, for all seek their own, put themselves above everybody else's need, not the things which are Christ. And he says to Timothy, I don't have anybody, and there's two key words here we're going to look at. First one is like-minded. And the second one down through here, he says, he says, I have no man like-minded, and the second word will be the word naturally. So he sends them Timothy. That Timothy is like-minded. It's taking young men and young ladies and building the mind of Christ into them, which you already have, 
And through you having the mind of Christ and teaching and building that mind of Christ in them, you both become like-minded when it comes to the ministry. And you realize that it's the ministry is the number one thing in our life after we're saved. I don't care what you think. If you have any other passion or goal after you're saved than to do for God what he called you to do, you're in the wrong pew. Like-minded. Now, maybe you guys understand. This is why I started the people ministry years ago. The people ministry was about people. But you know what it was more about? Me spending time with you on those Saturday mornings, letting you see inside of me. Let you see what God has put in my heart. And hopefully God, through the Spirit of God, would take what he put in my heart through our time together, put it into your heart. And he did, didn't he? Many of you. Why in time, I didn't do it all at the same time, <clears throat> but a little later on, once I saw how that was moving, I put Bible Institute together for my singles. The young men and young ladies who I think are the greatest single group of people, uh, you know, in all the young marriage too. You know, you, our church is about 80% of people in their 20s and their 30s. Us old folks who make up the, the pillars and hold the thing together, uh, we make a very small fraction of it. And, you know, this is why most churches are out of business today, because everybody out there with the coronavirus is 60 or older, and they're scared to death they're going to die, and some of them, rightly so, so they stay home. But you know what? In a young church, it's, it, it doesn't work that way. You, you understand. You've been trained. We're like-minded. You understand that no matter what befalls us, and you ain't seen nothing yet, we've got a job to do. So you take the cream of the crop, and you make them better. And through the process, you build that oneness. That oneness <clears throat> that only can come from somebody developing your mind, your skills, to get to the same end, people. Giving people what they need. And training them to be like-minded, doing the ministry the right way. And making yourself available to people that, hey, look, you know what? I'm here for you. You know, <clears throat> and I've watched this for probably been true forever. But in my half a century almost, I, 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 there's a real danger in Christianity for all of us. And you young people, the older you get. Now, right now, I get it. You're young. You can, you know, charge hell with a squirt gun with no water in it. You're, that's great. But I'm telling you. You're going to see this phenomena and the real danger in Christianity that the older you get, you become complacent. You lose your passion. A chocolate chip cookie is the best thing you could ever have unless it's laying on your shelf outside in the air for three weeks. Then it's stale. And God's people, the older they get, they get stale. They hit 50, 60, 65, 70, and we lose our edge. We get set on our ways, and we all do. <clears throat> we become unflexible. We develop attitudes. We lose our edge and our focus. And we just begin to cruise coast across the finish line. You see it in the military. 
You see these guys that are lifers, they're 20, 30 year men. And they'll get 17, 18, 19 years in the military and then they just start marking time. They just put in their time to get to their retirement. They quit training, no PT, no optical course, no rifle range. They just kind of vegetate and wait for the retirement time to roll by so they can go get their little cabin down the lake, buy them a boat, and uh, that's the way they go. And I've seen the same thing in Christianity all my ministry. I've seen pastors who get to the point when they get 60, 65, time to retire. You've did what you're supposed to have done, and so, you know, now we can kick back and relax and just retire because you earned it. You didn't earn squat. What you should have earned is an eternity in hell with crying out your lungs. But when God came down and saved you, he gave you a job to do. And Ecclesiastes chapter 8 tells us that there's no discharge from that war. When David got into trouble Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1, you know what the great verse is? There was a day when the kings went forth to war. And David stayed home. There's a danger in getting out of the battle. <clears throat> and I've seen the same thing in Christianity all my life. <clears throat> and then you just kind of vegetate. I've been in churches all my life where the deacons walk around like they're somebody when they're nothing. They don't win anybody to Christ in 40 years. They haven't read their Bible through in 20 years. Uh, they just, they have the title and the status and they're just going to Get on a bicycle and coast downhill that the finish line is heaven. And they're all the same way. They develop an attitude. The younger ones, the fire eaters, they, they, they start to do what they don't do anymore. And they don't like it. Hey, you don't want to do it, but you don't like somebody else doing it. You're a mess, man. You can't be effective in a church full of fire eaters if you had a flame out. You got to stay in it yourself. And just like people getting older don't want to keep themselves physically in good shape, God's people don't want to keep themselves in spiritually good shape, and they lose that key ingredient, like-mindedness. They don't see others anymore. They only see themselves. What is Prominent in their life is their comfort level, not their discomfort. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't ever say much about myself, but I'm going to tell you right now, that ain't ever going to happen to me. I'm 70 years old. I got a mind of a 20-year-old. I, I know, it's hard to get up in the morning. It is. You need a nap in the afternoon? I do. I'm just telling you. Your bones creak and crack? Yes, they do. I mean, I told somebody at the fitness center the other day trying to work out, you know how you know you're getting old? When it's harder to get out of the machine than it is to do the exercise when you're in it. I get it. But your feels, it's what your mind is. And when you're like-minded and you have the mind of Christ, Moses I don't care if you're 120. I don't care how old you get. You never lose your edge. And that's what happens with God's people. I get it. Now the next key word is naturally. Verse 20 says, naturally care for your sakes. And that's a great word. In Christianity, there are some things that should just come naturally. Naturally. 
to you and me. Like Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, your reasonable service, living sacrifice, it's reasonable. Well, in your Christian life and mine, once you get saved, there's natural things that should happen. One, you should have a man in your life or a woman. Two, in time, you ought to be that man and woman in somebody's life. Three, your Bible, learning it and applying it. Four, your leadership on one of the four levels. Five, and your ability to be like-minded with the other people around you that we can get into a ministry and like-mindedness rules the day. That whatever you do, you do it the right way, the way it needs to be done. Paul and Timothy. Now, our second example is, again, in Philippians. And it's the uh, end result of the Timothy Project. You want to keep that phrase in mind, the Timothy Project. Will be found in verses 25 through 30 with an eye by the name of Epaphras. It says, yet I suppose it necessary to send to you uh, Epaphras, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that, she, uh, that ye heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, not only him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I send him therefore the more carefully, that when ye see him again ye may rejoice, and that I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord uh, with all gladness, and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. No, I don't even know what to say about this guy. I, I, I really don't. Facing what we're facing today, and I get it. I get it. I understand. I'm not speaking lightly against it. I get it. But what do you do with a guy like this in your Bible? One time we had an evangelist that used to come up here by the name of Leo Humphrey. Some of you remember Leo Humphrey. Leo Humphrey was the modern New Testament John the Baptist. This guy was fearless. I'd been with him in Central America. I'd been with him all over the places having crusades. He loved to win people to Christ. He probably had the worst Spanish in the world, but it didn't stop him from preaching in Spanish, and the people loved him. Wherever you went in El Salvador, they knew the name Leo Humphrey. He was the most compassionate, soul-winning, fired-up guy that you ever met in your life. But he was, he was not your norm. He was a John the Baptist all the way. And it used to drive me nuts because he didn't pull any punches. He would sit, come into a church of proud and, and people like, you know, find in most churches today, and he would gut them. He would just let them have it. And it always just infuriated me. When the, before he came to preach, the head pastor would get up and he'd say, now, Leo Humphrey's going to come and preach to you now. Now, let me just tell you, he's a little different than, than, than we are. And I want to prepare you because he's, he's a little, he's different. And you just need to, and I would think to myself, what in the world are you doing apologizing for a guy that is exactly what we ought to be? That's the world we live in today. I watched him one time. 
We're out there, we'd go out during the day and we'd pass out tracts and tell them that there was going to be a movie in the square of the city. And down in El Salvador, Guatemala, wherever you go, everybody will come out for that. And the movie they used to show was the goofiest movie you ever saw uh, about hell. I even forget the name of it now. It was absolutely the stupidest thing. Didn't matter. They'd show them this movie on hell and then Leo would get up and he'd preach. There'd be three, four hundred people. All the time I was in Central America back in the day, I never had anybody refuse a tract. I never had anybody didn't want to listen about the Lord. You know why? Oh, this is going to hurt you now because they had just went through a major civil war where thousands and thousands of people were killed. And every time you have some uproar, upheaval in society, it opens up the doors for the gospel. You can forget I said that. Don't want to ruin your day. You know what he did? I watched him go over to this little girl, and he gave her a tract, and he says, in Spanish, he says, Honey, he says, I want you to come to the, to the thing tonight. She went and asked her mom, and she, they, she was selling bread there in the side market. She went and asked her mom, and her mom, I could see her mom going like this, and she came back over, and she says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but my mom will not let me go as long as we have bread to sell. You know what he did? He went and bought all her bread. She came to the meeting and she got saved that night. He didn't walk around saying, hey, you know who I am. I'm Leo Humphrey. Just come and hear me tonight. He invested in her life. And then what he did, he gave the bread away to people free who needed the bread. I mean, it's incredible. But what do you do with a guy like this? I mean, this is one of the greatest examples of what a child of God should be that we are not. Every one of us. It's laid out here, and there are six key qualities of this guy. Now, now I've made it clear. I mean, I've never made this a secret. I've made it clear uh, since the beginning of our church uh, that this church will not be for everybody. I, I get that. I never expected it to be because of what I want to build and the way I'm going to do it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's just not going to happen. It, it isn't. Uh, back in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, the Bible says that God was looking for a man. He's looking for a man to stand in the gap and make up the hedge. Many ever studied that, but the gap is defensive and the hedge is offensive warfare. And God was looking for a certain kind of man. And I'm telling you right now, so am I and woman. God was looking for a man in his day to change the world. I'm looking for a man and a woman today that that I can mentor and put into their life and train and give them to change the world. And it's just the way that it is. This church is a processing center. Nothing more. You come in, you check it out, you'll hear me preach, you see what's going on, you process it all, and then you decide, yeah, this is for me, or no, it's not. And if it's not, it's okay. Some do, most don't. But what stays in most cases is exactly what I'm looking for. That's why this church is filled with the young people that it is, and or young couples and the young, I say young people, you know what I mean, you young adults. And when I look for a man or look for a woman, I look for these six things. A like-minded person who naturally has some of these things. So he says about Epaphrodites here, he says, first of all, he says, he's my brother. Now, that obviously goes without saying that he's a saved man and he's his brother in the Lord. 
But Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loveth for all times, and a brother is born for adversity. In the ministry, there's going to be adversity. In a ministry, it isn't always going to be nice. It isn't always going to be easy. It's going to be hard. Not everybody's going to like what you have to do. They're not all going to like what you say. And, you know, it's, it's a time when if you have a like-mindedness and you have the, you know, the natural abilities, the fact that, you know what, this is where the oneness comes in. All of my life, and I've just seen this, and it just drives me crazy. All of my life, I've had to stand by myself for issues. And there were guys out there or women out there that should have stood with me that did not back in the day and whatever. And you know what? They didn't want to be the bad guy. They didn't want to lose a friend. They wanted to kiss their rear end up one side and down the other and not offend them. Well, I'm going to tell you something. There are times, as Paul in the church at Corinth, there's times when you're going to have to take your stand. And a real brother, in this case, stood with Paul. You know why? Because a real brother is born for adversity. It isn't about friendship. It isn't about losing this person. It's about the truth and what you do with it. And he says he's born for adversity, like-minded. There's a great message you ought to get on YouTube. Dr. Ruckman preached many, many years ago. It's called Cowards in the Ministry. Great lesson. Then the second thing he says is my companion. Now that'll be the sweet fellowship that we have together as we watch God bring in the blessings. Watch the people come in. Watch their lives get changed. It's hard to see this if you're not involved in somebody's life. And if somebody that's not out there seeking to try to get into somebody's world, mixing with the crowd, meeting people, finding out who they are, work the crowd, like I said. So many people only see the negative in everything. Ten people get saved, a ministry's going around the world, affecting hundreds and hundreds of people, and all they see is the negative. They're always negative. And uh, it's just the way that it is. You've got to build relationships that are built around what God is doing in your life and in my life. But when, there's not do, when God is not doing anything in your life, it's possible to see, impossible to see what he's doing in somebody else's. In other words, it comes down to this. You have to make the effort. Every week, I have people call me on the phone. And it, it, I say this, say this wrong because I really know what it is. But it's stating the obvious. Wow, isn't it exciting when everything is happening? Wow, did you see so-and-so? Wow, did you know this happened to so-and-so? Boy, God is just doing this. That's the kind of stuff. All the opportunities that are before us. Then he says, my fellow soldier. This will be my foxhole buddies. In battle together. You know, combat vets, I used to go to, most of them are dead now, but for years I went to all these World War II reunions that these guys had. And the war had been over 50, 60 years, and the bonds were still tight. They talked about the things that they went through. They talked about the cold times at Bastogne. They talked about the times of Normandy. They talked about all of the times that they, they, they were of, of uncertainty. And it was guys who built a bond because they would say to this guy, I'm going to put my life into your hands today, and I'm going to trust you. And tomorrow that guy would say back, and I'm going to put my life in your hands today, and I'm going to trust you. Combat forges camaraderie. The battle, warfare, forges alliances. 
And it's a thing where, you know, and when, you know, when you have as a companion and a brother and then you go through the warfare of Ephesians 6, it galvanizes people together as fellow soldiers. And it's a thing where, you know, today we, we just don't find that. I have very little tolerance for in Christianity conscientious objectors. I have very little tolerance for people who would not, who not get into the battle. I understand it. You may be a wonderful person, but you know, I, it, it comes at a time that fellow soldier is what he was to Paul. He didn't let Paul fight the battle by himself. And it's a, it, it, it's a thing. Then he said, a messenger. As a brother, companion, and a soldier, we have a message to get out. Nothing should stop that message. Times change, good times leave, bad times come in, but the message never stops and it never changes. Nothing will stop the message except us. Uh, we, are, we, we, we are the ones who have to carry the message and we have to find a way, no matter where we're at, how to get that done. Operation Remnant, October 11th. You're going to see it. God's people today, most of them, will always take the path of least resistance. And I've said it before. I hate the 20th and the 21st century. Paul said he was a Jew born out of due season. I'm a Gentile born out of due season. I hate the 20th and the 21st century. I hate everything about it. I hate the lackadaisical Christians. I hate the men and women that have no steel in their backbone. I have the people that crawl under the rock every time something comes their way. Put me back in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, brother. Put me back where Christianity knew what it meant to take a stand. Put me back in a time where you paid a price for blood if that's what you had to do. This 20, 21st Christianity is sickening to me. It's absolutely destitute. And I'll tell you, it is an absolute mess. Then he says, a minister. How do you see God's ministry in your life? Do you even have one? Or do you always complain about what you don't have when there's a thousand opportunities in front of you? But you'll never catch it in your couch in front of the TV. You'll never catch it when you're not putting yourself out there where God can use you. And you've got to look at what the ministry means to you, what this church means to you. Somewhere where you can get all you want but never have to give anything back. It's okay when well, all was good, but when the world crashes in, then you know what? It isn't good anymore. I mean, what does it mean? Do you love it because it's where God has put you to fulfill His plan and purpose? Or is it simply just not worth your risk? Is it your passion? Is it your life? Is it everything that you live and breathe as it should be once God saved you? Then he says, fellow laborer. As brother, as companion, as fellow soldier, as messenger, as minister, and now as fellow laborer. 1 Corinthians 3, 9, for we are labor together with God. You're God's husbandman. You're God's building. Building each other. We build each other as we build others. And the work of God only gets stronger because a brother is born for adversity. And truthfully, the more adversity any church goes through, the stronger it should become. And it will, because the adversity purges out the non-hackers. 
And then you're left with Proverbs 27 17. What's left is iron sharpeneth iron. Now look at this guy. By 20, 21st century standards, what an absolute fool he is. It only proves, folks, that in Christianity today, in the church of Jesus Christ, there's a sucker born every minute. He's sick, and the Bible tells us that yet he's nigh unto death. Now that's a serious condition. But he cared more about the people that God gave him than his own physical needs. What an idiot he is. What an absolute joke this guy must have been. Paul said in verse 28, I sent, he's saying, I'm going to send him to you, but he says, I'm sending him more carefully. Why? Because this guy's almost ready to die. He's sick. And Paul says, I'm sending him, but I'm sending him carefully. Look at verse 30. What do you do with a guy like this? Because the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. What an idiot. What a guy. I mean, he's sick, he's nigh unto death, but he's caring more about the people that have needs than he is. I don't even know what do you do with a guy like that in the world that we live in today. That is so foreign to God's people that some of you right now listening to this don't like it. You know why you don't like it? You couldn't do that on your worst day. There's a man who cared more about the things of God, who understand the things of God, that when his own personal life is going to pieces, he's sick. Listen to me. 